Welcome to part two of our study on the organization of the church. In our last podcast, we talked about what the Bible teaches regarding how a church should be scripturally organized. We looked at the local church and leadership of that church, such as elders and deacons. We also talked about saints. We talked about evangelists. And then we also looked at the religions in the world today that have, for instance, global councils or groups that provide oversight and management of a local congregation. And we saw what the Bible had to say about that. So today we are going to talk about what we call modified organizations. And so these would be churches that have an oversight from a central organization. We're also going to be talking about foundations, man-made foundations that perform the same functions as a church and whether or not that's scriptural. And then we're going to finish by answering some questions that have been submitted to our website regarding the organization of the church. So stay tuned. Welcome to the Bible Questions podcast brought to you by BibleQuestions.org and the Holy Street Church of Christ. This podcast is dedicated to answering your Bible questions from the Bible. My name is Jeff, and along with Brian, we are the hosts of this program. All right, Jeff, so we are back for another episode to talk about the organization of the church. And uh, before we start on modified organizations and what the Bible has to say about that, we finished up last week on the local church. So uh, if there's anything else you'd like to say about that, feel free. Otherwise, we'll get right into modified organizations and the rest of today's topic. In some ways, from a, a local congregation perspective, I think that pretty much covers the you know various bases of you know saints in general, generally speaking. Some having you know specialized roles like elders with all the synonyms, deacons, preacher, teacher, you know, and and those you know synonyms as well. So maybe at this point we kind of go above the local level. Yeah, definitely. One other critical aspect that we've touched on a little bit, but I think it's probably one of the most critical areas that that congregations get right, and that is the idea of autonomy. And so when you think about church autonomy, the term autonomy just simply means self-governing, if you were just to look up a basic dictionary definition. So, you know, God's intention was for a local church to be self-governing as opposed to being governed, you know, by an external council or group that we were talking about at the very beginning of this podcast. So in the first century, every local church had complete autonomy from all other congregations in the same city or, you know, state or region, and and also complete autonomy from any centralized human organization, as I just mentioned. So every church was independent of any, you know, headquarters, council, or really any other type of external oversight, and they were locally overseen, if you will, by elders whose accountability for everyone really goes back to the Lord, so not to men. So, for instance, over in 1 Corinthians, or excuse me, 1 Peter, I should say, 1 Peter chapter 5, verses 1 through 3, here Peter, talking about himself as an elder, he says, The elders who are among you I exhort, I, who am a fellow, a fellow elder and a witness of the sufferings of Christ and also a partaker of the glory that will be revealed, he says in verse 2 of 1 Peter 5, shepherd the flock of God, which is among you, serving as overseers. So notice these terms or statements here, you know, shepherd the flock among you, serving as overseers. And he goes on in verse 3 to say, not as being lords over those entrusted to you, but being examples to the flock. 
So once again, flock, local group. Um, Acts chapter 20, just one more example uh, in this area we'll talk about. And that is, you know, Paul had called the elders from the church at Ephesus. This would be the last time that he would see them, they would see him. And, and so he kind of wanted to give them some parting admonitions, if you will. And so part of what he told them, beginning in verse 28 of Acts chapter 20, he said, therefore, take heed to yourselves and to all the flock among which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers. Notice he then says to shepherd the church of God, which he purchased with his own blood. Verse 29, for I know this, that after my departure, savage wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. Verse 30, also from among yourselves, men will rise up, speaking perverse things to draw away the disciples after themselves. Verse 31, therefore watch. And remember that for three years, I did not cease to warn everyone night and day with tears. So once again, looking at this passage, it becomes very apparent that we have an eldership, that's responsible for the church at Ephesus, and he's encouraging them to oversee that particular church, not multiple churches. And he specifies to watch out for things like savage wolves coming in among, you know, men, verse 30, rising up from among themselves. So we see here clearly that this is pointing to local leadership, having the autonomy, right, being self-governed and only managing, if you will, I, it may not be the best term, but overseeing, if you will, a local congregation. And then the final thing is, Jeff, and then I'll uh, hand it over to you for any thoughts that you have. We see that the word sounded forth from each congregation, not from some central organization. So First Thessalonians chapter 1, beginning in verse 6, Paul here says, And you become followers of us and of the Lord, having received the word in much affliction with joy of the Spirit, so that you become examples to all in Macedonia and Achaia who believe. For from you, the word of the Lord has sounded forth, not only in Macedonia and Achaia, but also in every place. Your faith toward God has gone out so that we do not need to say anything. So here Paul is complimenting them, saying that the word sounded forth and they were good examples. But the bigger point I want to make here is notice that the word of the Lord sounded for, uh, forth excuse me, from the local churches in Macedonia and Achaia. It was through the church, right? The church is called the pillar and the ground of the truth. And so, you know, we are to have local autonomous congregations that teach and spread the word and that elders oversee and not some of the modified organizations, Jeff, that we see today. On you know, several points I can I could make here, you know, one is, you know, back to the check and balances. If you have centralized control, centralized hierarchy, world headquarters, whatever, you know, wherever that president or ruling council or pope or whatever term, um, you know, chooses to say or do or where they, you know, choose to take the the religious group, you know. Now you've got you know one person or a small group of people in charge of the whole thing, and if if they go south, then the whole you know group goes south again. Uh, that's something in God's wisdom. With you know local congregations, you know a local congregation can basically you know fall away um, in a sense, and you know congregations around it are not dragged down, so to speak, you know by it. That that's one 
know point I might make. The other ones I, I like the fact that you pointed out uh, Acts versus twenty. Uh, and let me make kind of a couple points there before we move on. You know, Paul called for the elders. He said the Holy Spirit had made them overseers. I think the word there is bishop. That they were to shepherd. There's the word pastor. So elders, bishops, pastors, synonymous, etc. Again, back to back to that point. But then Paul goes on to say, "For I know this that after my departure, these things will happen." Which is interesting, I think, because if you look in secular history, uh, within, and I honestly don't remember exactly how long, but it wasn't very long and by the end of the first century, perhaps even uh, you know, maybe into the second century, that congregations started to make a distinction between bishops and elders. And elders were over a congregation, but they would have a chief elder or a chief bishop. Um, and then from Which, that, oh, by the way, the Bible says nothing about <laughs> exactly, exactly. And then that kind of led to, well, you know, a chief bishop, you know, within the major congregation of the city, you know, starting to influence or rule over smaller congregations, perhaps in outlying villages, and you know, certainly not among them, like Acts 20 says. And then you have, you know, different bishops in different leading cities starting to vie for power, which, you know, roll forward, you know, a few hundred years. You know, you have the, the Bishop of Rome and the Bishop of Constantinople fighting amongst each other. And then, you know, eventually you have what amounts to the Catholic Church. Uh, again, the, the emergence of a hierarchy, not the creation of a hierarchy from the beginning, if, if I can make that. Uh, uh, distinction. And as Paul said, I know this, that after my departure, this is going to happen. And anyways, that's exactly what happened. And it happened pretty quickly early on within, you know, into the first, into the second, and certainly by the 400s, 500s, 600s, you know, you have, you know, declaration of the first universal bishop or papa or, or pope, you know, within the uh, you know, Roman Catholic uh, faith. Yeah, and you know what's interesting, Jeff, is sometimes it's it's malicious, like, you know, as, as we talked about in verse 30 there of Acts 20, where it talks about, you know, some men would rise up, try to draw away disciples after themselves. So sometimes you have that. And then sometimes you just have things that are innocently done, like this, you know, local bishop. Um, you know, some of this, and it is fascinating to study, you know, sometimes you would have congregations where they were young, they didn't have qualified men to be elders. And in fact, because they were young, they had a lot of babes in Christ. And so sometimes they would simply reach out to people with more experience um, innocently to help them and unknowingly sort of blowing up the, the autonomy, if you will, of that local church, because now they're reaching out to men from other churches to help them locally uh, when that's really not what God wanted to have done. So anyhow, just, just wanted to mention that as well. And that's a good point. And, and likewise, I could throw uh, out the example of uh, Mormons and Mormonism, where within a you know, local congregation, they have what they call elders, excuse me, teenage boys. They have what they call a bishop, which is one guy in charge. Um, and so we, we see Bible terms being used. And of course, you know, above the local congregation, 
in the, uh, the top of the hierarchy, you've got president, have apostles, have prophets, and we can get into that, you know, perhaps later on. Again, the use of Bible terms, not in Bible ways. And so there, yeah, there's that. Sort of hijacked the terms and changed them, <laughs> right? So. Right, right. Exactly. So where are we going next? So let's take a look at, you know, kind of modified organizations. So we talked about church autonomy. What What's God's intention for the design of the local church and his universal church overall? And now what have we seen man do, Jeff, with, with some modified organizations that we see today? Uh, we've seen, actually, we do see uh, quite a number. But in some ways, I like to go back first of all to the you know New Testament pattern and and the picture of, of of Jesus and his church. Now here we have a term church, sometimes used in a couple different ways. As we've said, there's like the local congregation, local church, local saints, uh, members, etc. But there's also church in a singular sense, right? Jesus and his church, singular, uh, the, the whole organization, so to speak. Uh, Ephesians 5, 23, for as the husband is the head of the wife, so also Christ is head of the church, savior of the body. Colossians 1, 18, he is the head of the body, the church. Uh, Colossians, uh, further on down, Colossians 1, 24, uh, now I rejoice in my sufferings for you uh, for the sake of his body, which is the church. You know, one head, one body, one church. Yeah, one other one I'll throw in here real quick, Jeff, and that's in Acts chapter 2 and verse 47. We're told that the Lord added to the church daily those who were being saved. Okay. What we have, at least within the New Testament pattern here, you know, Jesus, one head, one body, one church. You know, we don't have this concept of a multiplicity of bodies being connected to one head. I mean, the picture itself is just absurd. You know, multiplicity of conflicting religious denominations as multiple bodies looking to Jesus as the head. No, not that. Um, we also need to respect, given this one head, one body, one church kind of thing, respecting the silence of the scriptures. You know, we just don't see within the scriptures any sort of, you know, centralized governing headquarters, body, council, board, pre presidency, you know, nothing. Uh, you know, we looked at the qualifications detailed for elders, deacons, and to, to some degree, you know, evangelists and preachers. Nothing in there about, you know, qualifications of those who would serve in higher levels of power position and authority and hierarchy nothing 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 at all it's very interesting the scripture is being silent you know as, as you mentioned already you know first peter 5 talking about local oversight local shepherding you know given to the elders yeah, among them uh and the fact that that local congregation the local sheep if you will have been entrusted to the local shepherds elders by whom well the chief shepherd that's First Peter uh, five verse four. You know, local shepherds walking, watching over the flock, entrusted to them by and accountable to the chief shepherd, not some higher level. I don't know ter what term you want to use. Regional oh. bishop. <laughs> yeah, regional. Uh, bishop. Ultimately, right, right. I was, I was just going to build it upwards. 
a regional bishop or a regional council or a national council or pope or uh, president. Brian, any thoughts you want to add in there? Yeah, I'm glad you brought up the point about chief shepherd, because if you think about hierarchy just in civil society, it's like the president or the CEO, right? Top of the the organization. Well, Jesus is the top of this organization, so it doesn't leave room for anybody else. Right. Hey, good point. Now, in all fairness, before we leave this topic, you know, some people who are acquainted with the, with the New Testament might say, well, well, now wait a minute, Brian and Jeff, what about Acts 15? And, and, and we need to address that, Brian. You know, if, if you go to Acts 15 and kind of read the chapter, you, you kind of get a sense that, you know, first of all, a group of Jewish Christians came to Antioch from Jerusalem, came to Antioch where Paul and Barnabas were members, and they were teaching that the Gentiles needed to be circumcised. And of course, we realized they were teaching false doctrine. And so big discussion. Okay, They decided to then go back to the congregation in Jerusalem that these teachers had come from, to the apostles and elders there. And of course, a lot of discussion followed there as well. Uh, ultimately, based on what Peter, Paul, Barnabas, James and the Holy Spirit concluded was that yes, this was false doctrine, that these members who had left you know Jerusalem to go to Antioch had been teaching false doctrine. They were wrong. You know, letter was written uh, to communicate this fact, you know, from you know those in Jerusalem to Antioch. And and what we have in this example um was we have an issue that was basically, you know, clarified by Holy Spirit-inspired, uh, you know, apostles. Uh, and this is not uh, what I might call general authority for some kind of mother church, uh, not authority for someone to have a, you know, centralized thing with Peter as a pope. And we're not talking about that as well. Um, we're not talking about a you know multiple church convention or some other arrangement of uninspired people, you know, setting policy. So you know, if if you want to go to Acts 15 for that kind of pattern, that's that's not the pattern we see. Brian, you want to comment anything on that? Yeah, and I think the key verse here, you know, you were talking about in Acts chapter 15, it it says that. Verse 6, the apostles and elders came together to consider this matter. This is the matter of, you know, the Jews saying that the Gentiles had to be circumcised. And so it was a very unique situation. I mean, we don't have apostles today. Uh, and, you know, the church is fully established today. Back then, the church was just being established. And there was a lot of questions and confusion and so forth. Well, now that we have the fully revealed word of God, all of that's been answered for us. Exactly. So we have to recognize that as a unique time in the history of the church. Indeed. Now, what about, of course, we've talked about, you know, the structure of local congregations. You talked about the structure of the church overall. It's really simple because Jesus as the head and individual members, members of his body. Um, but what about other organizations, organizational arrangements that, that churches might get into? Yeah, this was this is one that's 
always disturbed me a little bit because a lot of these efforts have been started by Christians who, um, you know, for the most part, follow what the New Testament teaches. But for whatever reason, they're introducing things that the Bible does not support. So when we just finished talking about, you know, God's intention was to have a local church be fully autonomous from other congregations, but also to have the responsibility of teaching the gospel to the local community and really could even be globally uh, from that local church. And so what we started to see going back to like the 1950s and much like, you know, Jeff said, uh, Solomon said, uh, you know, there is nothing new under the sun, right? A lot of this is cyclical, exactly. but mm -hmm. here in the United States, we, we saw something called the Herald of Truth, which back in the 1950s was an effort to evangelize to people all across this country. And I think it may have even gone globally, but, mm -hmm. you know, they were reaching out to local congregations and demanding really that they help fund this show. And because it would be a syndicated, you know, like sort of national broadcast, uh, it would cost a little bit more money than if they were just doing a local market. And so they started asking uh, other churches to contribute. And, you know, some under the the eyes of, you know, uh, guys, if you will, of the end justifies the means. Hey, if good is being accomplished, then it must be authorized. Well, no, it's not. And we'll, we'll talk more about that. But also we, we saw like, uh, I don't know, 80s, 90s, something called the Truth Foundation uh, was started by several brethren. Um, and this was a foundation that already sold books and other study material that a lot of churches used. But then they sort of expanded to create a formal foundation that would do things like hold gospel meetings, hold special studies, even worship services outside of the church structure. So just another example where men have created something uh, to replace what God intended for the church to do. And so just a couple passages along this line. One is, you know, the church is the entity uh, where God sounds forth the truth from. So 1 Timothy chapter 3, verse 15 says the church is the church of the living God, the pillar and ground of the truth. Uh, we looked earlier at 1 Thessalonians chapter 1 and verse 8, where Paul was complimenting the church and the brethren at Thessalonica, because he says in verse 8, the word of the Lord has sounded forth, not only in Macedonia and Achaia, but also every place. So we see that local congregation was sounding forth the gospel, and that's what God intended, not for a foundation created by men to do the work that he intended the church to do. Well, and, you know, you mentioned 1950s, but you could, at least within Churches of Christ, go back into the 1800s, even earlier than that, where, you know, my understanding is there were some that wanted to form kind of a pseudo-religious organization separate from local congregations. Uh, if, hopefully I got the name right, the American Christian Missionary Society. Ah, uh, yes, yes. Um, and so you have churches now contributing money to a human-run, human-led, human-organized, you know, not elder-run <laughs> um, group uh, that they, in turn, then take that money and they decide, you know, as, as preachers or sending missionaries, whatever, you know, who to hire, who to send, where to send them, whatever. 
and again you have another you know group standing up kind of beside the you know local congregations doing work that the lord assign local congregations to do now honestly you know i understand where you know churches need to purchase goods and services and you know we're not talking about you know that uh, you know renting a building or purchasing you know power from the local utilities we're talking more about a church you know being responsible for as you're saying you know preaching the gospel or you know teaching the saved or as we'll see a little bit later on you know providing benevolence or charity uh, or financial support to needy saints and somehow taking that responsibility and giving it to someone else or sending their money to someone else to do that and letting that other organization decide how to spend that money. Uh, again, not, not a pattern we see in the New Testament, whether that other organization is an outside, as you said, you know, president, board of directors kind of thing, or, or some other congregation, you know, to do the work assigned to a, a local congregations in like a sponsoring church arrangement. Some people may have heard that as well. Yeah, that's a good one to bring up because, you know, you can kind of see that people understood there needs to be some oversight to this money that's collected. So in the case of the Herald of Truth, uh, and I'm pretty sure this is this is correct. Uh, we could certainly verify it, but that they had appointed, you know, a church that had elders to oversee the money that was collectively pooled together. Uh, therefore, the sponsoring church, right? And so they are the one that organized it. They are the one that's overseeing it. So some might argue, well, there you go. Local elders are overseeing this. But as we've studied early on when we started up these podcasts, when it comes to establishing authority, we have to look at direct commands, proved examples, necessary inference. Well, we don't see any of that in the scriptures where you have a sponsoring church or one eldership that's overseeing the funds collected by another church. It just isn't in the scriptures, is it, Jeff? Right. Yeah, that's the uh, Highland Avenue Church of Christ there in uh, Abilene, Texas. Ah, okay. Around the Herald of Truth. And 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 we don't see that. Um, now, their intentions were good, but it's not according to the pattern. Well, exactly. And, you know, in a lot of these cases, you know, as you said, sometimes it's malicious, but, but oftentimes, you know, the intentions are good. For instance, you know, we can gather together monies from multiple congregations and leverage that money in any number of ways. You know, major ad campaigns, radio stations, TV stations put on, you know, you know, reach, quote unquote, a much broader audience than what perhaps a local congregation could do with their members, elders teachers, preachers, uh, evangelists, and it sounds good, and, it, and it's it's well-intentioned. But the question is, is it authorized? And from what we're seeing, based on the scriptures, it's not, basically. Definitely is not. Now, now we mentioned a little bit about preaching, uh, you know, teaching, et cetera. One of the other aspects, if you will, of congregations kind of um, organization, so to speak, um, is related to getting involved in various, I'll say, secular works or charitable works or community service projects or general benevolence, uh, et cetera. 
Um, and that kind of gets us into the subject of, you know, the roles of, of the local congregation in terms of, you know, caring for the needy and, and secular kinds of things. And, and certainly, you know, Brian, individual Christians can help non-Christians, however appropriate, you know, Galatians 6.10, good verse for that. Uh, but as we look through the scriptures, as we've kind of hinted at, you know, we don't see any commands. We don't see any approved examples. You know, we don't even see any necessary inferences that would you know, authorize a local congregation to do things like offer, you know, income tax consultation, you know, teaching English as a second language, um, doing, you know, charity within the local neighborhood, you know, food banks or clothing drives or et cetera, or, or even, you know, cash payments to, you know, non-Christians, you know, out of the treasury. We don't see that. Um, those sorts of benevolence kinds of things, uh, all the New Testament examples we have, we have, you know, congregations helping Christians. Um, now, the only, so in terms of what the New Testament authorizes, you know, the only organization responsible for assisting needy Christians, you know, was the local congregation. Now, that's in helping their own members. Or we do see, admittedly, the case where some congregations would help needy saints in other congregations, but that was via sending money to that other eldership and, and letting that eldership, you know, then decide, you know, the needy saints to support. You know, we certainly don't see a pattern of local congregations giving money to charitable organizations like the Red Cross, for instance, or the United Way. Uh, we don't see churches banding together to do some sort of charitable or charitable work for the community, like the World Council of Churches or the United Nations Children's Fund or you know whatever term you want. Uh, we we do see some congregations helping other needy congregations with their needs. Uh, so we do have that pattern, but we you know we don't have these uh, other patterns. As, as you said, you know we may think all this is uh, a good work, which humanly viewed. Certainly could be. But I think, Brian, the pivotal question is, you know, what does the head of the church think about it? You know, Jesus is the head of the church. So what does he think? You know, shouldn't we do what he authorizes? Uh, and from what we've talked about so far in terms of scriptural pattern, you know, the kinds of patterns we've been talking about is what we do see. And we've been trying to point out a lot of things we see today uh, that are not according to the pattern. Brian, any other thoughts in this area? Yeah, and you know, as we look back over the podcast that we've done so far, Jeff, you know, we we touched on how we talked about properly, you know, doing the things that the Bible teaches us. We, you know, Bible authority. So in other words, everything we do, as we talked about, we need direct command, approved example, or necessary inference. We also, in a previous podcast, talked about the use of the treasury. So you know, all these things go hand in hand. The Bible limits the use of the funds that are collected on the first day of the week, what we might call the collection or the treasury. And so when you look at what some of these other organizations are doing with the church's money, it violates, as you touched on, Jeff, what the Bible tells us it should be used for. Needy saints, pre paying for the preaching of the gospel, you know, for your evangelist, so on and so forth. So anyhow, all these things go together. And I just hope our listeners understand, you know, we talk about what the church is authorized to do, 
uh, once the Bible spells that out, it rules everything else out. When the Bible tells us specifically what the treasury should be used for, it rules everything else out. When the Bible tells us how the local church should be managed, if you will, through or over you know, oversight of elders, it rules everything else out. And so I think that's the easiest way for, for everyone to remember is just look at what the Bible teaches. And then you don't have to worry about all these other things that man has introduced, because if it's not found in the Bible, we know that we can reject it because there's no authority uh, to do those things. Brian, we've been talking a lot about the scriptural pattern, you know, for the organization of the local congregation, local churches, as well as what we might call the church universal, which in some ways doesn't have an organization other than Jesus is the head and individual members. Uh, but now I think what we would like to do is kind of transition and focus on some questions that we have received uh, the website from various people around the world that are kind of related to uh, congregational organization, the different roles, operation, etc. And we've got several of those that will kind of round out our discussion. The first one we have, Brian, is from Lacey. And she asks, quote, has there been or can there be multiple prophets in an area or congregation, such as a revival or crusade? How would you respond to that? Yeah, good question, Lacey. You know, when we read, uh, when we look in the New Testament, in 1 Corinthians, for instance, we do see prophecy occurring. And as we've talked about on previous podcasts, and we'll, we'll answer here as well, you know, all of those spiritual gifts served a very specific purpose in the first century. Uh, however, they no longer serve the same purpose today. So for instance, as we read in 1 Corinthians chapter 13, uh, spiritual gifts, once we had the fully revealed word of God, it was God's intention that spiritual gifts would cease. So today there are no prophets alive today uh, who would be prophesying. So anybody that might claim to be a prophet we have to assume is a false prophet because there are no longer prophets today. So as I mentioned earlier in 1 Corinthians chapter 13, verses 8 through 10, uh, it mentions that you know prophecies would cease when the perfect revealed uh, word of God came, which did come. Um, once Jesus brought the truth of God's word and the Holy Spirit fully revealed God's will, then prophecies ceased. And so once again, no longer can be prophets today. Uh, we're also told, for instance, in 2 Peter chapter 1 and verse 3, that God has now given us all things that pertain to life and godliness. And also in 2 Timothy 3, 16 and 17, we're told that we've been given everything uh, thoroughly equipped for every good work. So one final passage I'll mention here, Jeff, and then turn it over to you for any comments that you have. And that is, you know, Hebrews 1, 1 through 3 really helps us understand that God now speaks to us through his son. So I'll just read it real quick. Hebrews 1, verse 1 says, God, who at various times and in various ways spoke in time past to the fathers by the prophets, has in these last days spoken to us by his son, whom he has appointed heir of all things, through whom also he made the worlds, who being the brightness of his glory and the express image of his person and upholding all, and upholding all things by the word of his power, when he had by himself, purged our sins, sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. So 
Hebrews makes it clear here that God no longer speaks to men through prophets, but through his son. And as we see in other passages, through what the Holy Spirit revealed to the inspired men that wrote the New Testament. So anyhow, that hopefully answers uh, Lacey's question. Well, and as you were talking, I was reminded of Ephesians 4, uh, verse 11, which we mentioned earlier, where it's almost like a list of roles or list of positions. Uh, quote, he himself gave some to be apostles, prophets, and it goes on to say evangelists, pastors, teachers. And we were focusing on you know evangelists and pastors or elders, teachers. We didn't really comment on you know, apostles and prophets. And your point about you know, 1 Corinthians 13, people would disagree with, you know, modern day prophets, you know, of course, Pentecostal groups, charismatic groups, uh, Mormonism, etc. Uh, the very same passage also talks about apostles. And again, a what seems to be a limited office, a limited time, special purpose, you know, like you indicated and likewise you know the person could have asked about you know multiple uh, apostles well same thing within new testament times special qualification or to be an apostles in a particular case you know once they died out there were no you know subsequent you know, apostles you know, once the miraculous gifts of the holy spirit to include prophecy you know kind of died out so to speak you know, no it's not an ongoing office just like apostles not an ongoing office Evangelists, yes, ongoing. Pastors, elders, bishops, etc., yes. Ongoing teachers, yes. Deacons, yes. But, uh, yeah, apostles and prophets, which I think kind of confuses some people, Brian. They come to the New Testament, and, and maybe we want to pause here for a second. We, we come to the New Testament, we talk about the pattern of the New Testament. People say, well, aha, didn't they have apostles then? Didn't they have prophets then? Didn't they have miracles then? Yes. Therefore, we should have apostles and prophets and miracles today. Well, no, because as you said, First Corinthians 13 says, okay, this is a special thing, special deal, limited time kind of situation, according to the New Testament. So you have the pattern, which is a limited time pattern, because that's what the pattern itself says about its, uh, hopefully that's not too using there. Yeah, and it, it is challenging at times to sort of separate out, you know, what was unique to just the first century as the church was getting up and running, so to speak, exactly. versus what still applies today. <laughs> so exactly. Okay. Turn. All right. So the second question we have comes from Diane. So this one will be for you, Jeff. She asks, "What is the difference between a prophet, a disciple, and a magi?" This is kind of a three-part question. So that's number one. What is the difference between a prophet, disciple, and magi? Second is, why are they all so different in the Bible if they all do what a priest or a pastor or a rabbi or a bishop does? A final question she had is, is there a rank? And if so, what is it? So there you go, Jeff. Three questions in one. <laughs> <laughs> uh, and I think this is a really good question because it illustrates the use of a lot of biblical terms. As we've said before, when we do that, we need to be very careful that we use Bible terms in Bible ways. And she's got at least you know, one, two, three, four, five, six, seven different terms. Bible terms in there, huh? <laughs> yeah. Right. And they're all, in one way or another, somehow related to religious activities. Some of them, even in terms of like a religious leader, 
So yeah, you can easily see the confusion because the Bible has a lot of different terms. So you have to be careful. Okay. So let's kind of take them one by one. Prophet, someone who speaks miraculously for God. Maybe because they are giving a message from God, you know, thus saith the Lord, or telling, as some people, or they're giving a miraculous message as a prediction, uh, something about the future or prophecy, you know, foretelling. That's what prophet does. And we've just got through talking about that in the previous um, question and answer. Disciple. That's a much broader term, general. It just simply means a learner or a follower, one who does what the master or person you know says to do. You know, Moses had disciples, quote unquote, John 28. On the Baptist had them, Matthew 9:14. Jesus had them while he was alive, Matthew 5:1. All faithful Christians are disciples, learners, followers. 28, 19, So, a broad term, disciple. Magi. Now, that's an interesting one. Um, comes from Matthew 2. Uh, eight, and again, here's another one of those transliterated Greek word, agios. G-O-S. That one's kind of obscure, uh, at least according to one resource I checked. It's a broad term given to uh, Wise men, teachers, priests, physicians, astrologers, seers, interpreters of dreams, augurs, soothsayers, sorcerers. Ooh. It can carry some kind of a miraculous significance, but not necessarily. Um, in the particular context of, of Matthew 2, hard to tell. Wise men from afar. Um, now we will notice prophet, disciple, magi. None of these are offices in the local congregation we've talked about. Uh, the closest would come would be prophets. And of course, we, we dealt with that, you know, 1 Corinthians 13. So continuing on to her, her next set of terms, priest. Certainly a religious leader. You can certainly see that in the Old Testament. Absolutely. When you come into the New Testament, at least according to 1 Peter 2, 5 through 9, all faithful Christians function as priests offering up spiritual sacrifices. Uh, it, it's not a special title given to a clergy versus laity position that you know we see in, in some religious groups. So okay. Priest as a separate thing, no, according to the New Testament pattern. Pastor, of course we've dealt with that a lot, you know, often a synonym for shepherd, an elder. Preacher, well, hold on. Yeah, yeah, we got to you know, deconflict that. Pastor is not the preacher. Pastor is one of several overseers, bishops, elders ruling over the flock. Okay. So, again, a pastor is a role. You understand it to be one of the elders in the eldership. Got it. Rabbi. Well, now, now, there's again, there's another biblical term, title by Jews to address their teachers. Now, what's interesting, and Brian, I don't think we've mentioned it so far. Jesus in Matthew 23, verses 1 through 12, expressly forbids the use of such titles. Rabbi, Rabbi. People may use a religious title of Father, Holy Father, or Reverend, or 
Pastor Jones, Pastor Smith, Pastor Sue, you know, whatever. No, no, I said we're not supposed to use that. Again, back to seeking the position for the glory, you know, seeking the title for the glory to be seen of men. So rabbi, not a New Test, not a New Testament congregation role. Bishop, okay, we've dealt with that already. You know, First Timothy three, Titus one. So again, a large number of terms. We just have to be very careful to use Bible terms in Bible ways and understand the distinction between Old Testament and New, and sometimes even in the New Testament between first century, temporary, and what is meant to be permanent on an ongoing basis up to and including our, our present day. So in, in terms of quote-unquote rank, um, I guess generally speaking, just for the church, individual members local congregation as we mentioned you've got you know elders who are the overseers over the saints saints too but you know over the rest of the membership uh, evangelists preachers teachers etc you know, under their rule not in a dictatorial way so and of course deacons also would be reporting to the elders as well. so there is kind of a a, a I don't necessarily use the word rank I don't necessarily want to use hierarchy uh, I don't necessarily want to say chain of command, Brian, but if you know what I mean in terms of elders over, but also accountable to the local congregation. Yeah, I think that's the key is that there is a system of accountability that's set up and checks and balances like we've been talked about where, you know, if you have an elder um, that has sinned, the Saints have the same responsibility to bring that sin to that person's attention as they do anyone. And uh, so in that sense, there being an elder doesn't uh, prevent somebody from legitimately, you know, bringing an accusation if it came to that. Right. right. Exactly. All right. Brian, let's go to the next question. Uh, Donna wrote in 1 Timothy 3.11. Does this verse refer to the fact that deacons should only be men, or that this is describing the role of godly women in the church? And I assume by that she might mean deaconesses. What about Phoebe in Romans 6.1, who is called a deaconess, at least per the international version? Yeah, so 1 Timothy 3.11, um, and actually, you know, it would be to verse 12, where it says, let deacons be the husbands of one wife, you know, ruling their children in their own house as well. And then verse 11 talks about their wives be, must be reverent and not slanderers, so on and so forth. So I think it's safe to conclude, as far as the first part of her question, that, you know, should deacons only be men? Yes, we, we have to uh, assume that because the qualifications spell that out. Uh, as far as Phoebe, um, Romans 16.1 uh, does use the term in some translations deaconess, but, you know, the Greek word there um, that some translations, you know, once again, translate deaconess, it actually just means servant. It's kind of a general term. In fact, it, you know, we looked at it's the same Greek word that's translated deacon, but it also can just be a general term meaning servant. So in most translations, if you read Romans 16, 1, she's called a servant of the church. And that in and of itself could just be a general term saying she helped out in the church, but it's not necessarily designating a specific office like that of a deacon. Right. 
so that's how I would answer that, Jeff. Sounds good. All right, and I think we got uh, one more, right? Yeah, we do. Um, this comes from Joe. For you, uh, what should a congregation do about a preacher slash elder that infers something from Scripture and teaches the people that if they disagree with it, they are sinning? Inference is simply an educated guess, he says. Uh, so what are your thoughts about that, Joe? Well, and it kind of was in a couple different directions. I think the first we would want to talk about is that of inferences you know generally speaking inferences are you know logical kind of conclusions that you draw based on various scriptures and the available evidence uh, and what we might want to do is draw a distinction between inferences as educated guesses from inferences that we might call necessary <clears throat> or forced once you look at all the available evidence, it's affirmed that, you know, this thing here is truth. First of all, I think what we would probably want to do is talk about inferences as simply being logical conclusions. You know, you go through deductive reasoning, logic, etc., based on what the scriptures say, what they don't say, context, definition, etc., uh, and based on the available evidence, you're drawn to a particular conclusion. Now, there are some conclusions that are, I was right, just an educated guess. We think it might be A, B, or C. And yet there are other situations where the inference or the conclusion you draw is, is pretty solid. It might be what is called a necessary inference or a forced conclusion, you know, different terms, uh, based on the weight of the evidence. This is most likely the way it is, or, or way it was, et cetera. Um, but I think, at least in terms of our discussion today, uh, the point coming back to the preacher, elder, saying something, believing something, teaching something, starting to force something, uh, these people in this you know special position you know, as a preacher and elder. I mean, we should just go ahead and, okay, fine, blindly follow them. And again, God will deal with them. Okay, we just followed them. We're innocent. Well, no. In fact, even, you know, Jesus recognized that back in Luke uh, chapter 6, verse 39. The blind lead the blind. Will they not both fall into the ditch? Oh, physically? Well, if you're can't see and you're being led by someone who can't see and person who's leading you you know lead you into a ditch lead you out into traffic whatever you're both going to get hurt you're both potentially going to get killed so certainly we see a situation where you know a person will study the bible and will come to some conclusion saying well x is true whatever x is and you're sinning if you don't do it Others will study the Bible and say, well, I don't know, X, that might be true, but it's not necessarily true. So we cannot say with confidence, well, you're sinning if you don't do it. Generally, we get into need to have a discussion. Okay, let's open our Bibles. Let's see what the Bible says. Let's see if we can you know, come to some consensus. And, you know, you allow time, you allow patience, you allow reasonable discussion. You know, bottom line is if the first person that we mention asserts that x is true and if you do not follow x you are sinning 
know, if they persist in that and if they forcibly draw a what we might call a line of fellowship, on the other side, others believe that he has bound what God has not bound. Now we're talking about a matter of fellowship or a matter of disfellowshipping or, or of parting the ways. And really, Brian, and honestly, it doesn't matter if it's involving quote unquote inferences or approved examples or alleged commands, whatever process a person goes through to arrive at the truth. If, if they arrive at the wrong conclusion and they want to force it on others, others are saying, well, you know, that's, that's not what the Bible says. Or it might say that, but, you know, we're not firmly convinced. If it comes to a head, it doesn't matter if it's a preacher or an elder or a deacon, just a member. If it's causing division, matters of faith, etc., you have to deal with it. You have to address it, regardless of if it's a person in a position of authority. It's like we mentioned earlier, First Timothy 5, you know, 20, about rebuking even an elder sins and wants to proclaim false doctrine. Yeah, that's right. And, you know, a couple of passages came to my mind, Jeff, as you were going through this. One was in Isaiah 118, where God's philosophy has always been, come now and let us reason together. And I've always tried to follow that philosophy as a Christian, because it's easy to assume we have the truth, or unfortunately for many, they assume their preacher, their evangelist, or like we talked about, some have just a general pastor uh, they assume, you know what, this person knows what they're talking about, so I'm going to defer to them, so to speak. But much like the Bereans, you know, we have the same responsibility to search the scriptures daily to see if those things that are being taught are so. And if they are and they're consistent with God's word, we follow them. If not, we have to reject them. So in that sense, titles, you know, whether somebody's an evangelist or not, or somebody has been a Christian for 50 years, none of that matters. All that really matters is what does the truth say, and let's find a way to all get there, right? So anyhow. And that's a good point because, you know, I mean, generally speaking, if a person is a full-time preacher or if they've devoted their lives to studying the scriptures, in general, you know, they should have a deeper knowledge of truth more so than a person who, you know, has a full-time secular job and... Only has some time. Yeah, it hasn't chosen that as a career, right? right. Yeah, you're exactly, exactly, right. yeah. exactly. Um, but let me quickly point out that's that's not a guarantee because you can have people go to you know quote, quote, religious colleges and get ordained and have a doctor divinity degree and have all this education and be certainly wise in terms of that religious institution's. Um, teaching and doctrine, et cetera, they can still be wrong. And again, it's an individual ability. It's an individual judgment. It's it's a personal responsibility we need, as you said, like the brands. But we need to study and not just take the pastor's word for it or the priest's word for it or the elder's word, or the evangelist's word, et cetera, or candidly, even our word for it. And we keep saying this over and over again with different podcasts, Brian. We may be saying something, sounds odd, in our audience, you know, go back to go back to your Bible, go back to your scriptures, look up these references, you know, do your own. Certainly don't take our word for it. That's it. Exactly. Yeah, definitely. And, you know, to that end, we 
we have covered a lot on this podcast, and this is just an example, Jeff, of another subject where on the surface you think, ah, we can cover all that in 30 minutes. But unfortunately, there is a lot of material, and I guess I shouldn't say unfortunate. It's fortunate that the God that God has given us through the Bible so much right. information on this particular topic. Well, and you see that uh, degree reflected in our website because we have lots of topics and, and lots of articles under each topic for addressing them. Did you want me just to go ahead and, and mention those quickly? Yeah, let's yeah, let's take a look, give folks a place to go to find more info about what we talked about. Okay. Oh, so if you go to our homepage at biblequestions.org, if you're on like a laptop or computer, you'll see a menu bar across the top. You'll also, within that menu bar, see the word topic. is one of the menu items. Uh, you also should see near the top of the page a list of individual letters or topical letters. Uh, alternatively, if you're on like a, a smartphone, there should be, I think it's like three dots or three bars, if I remember right, on the upper left corner. That is the yep. menu bar function. Anyway, lead you to the same, you know, go to the topics choice. Um, under topics, there are several um, letters that you can go to. Um, C for church government, as well as uh, C for church benevolence, which we talked about that as well. Uh, A for autonomy, uh, E for elders, D for deacons, E for preaching. Uh, even, and I don't think we use this term today, but I for institutionalism, which generally speaking is using groups or foundations or businesses, you know, outside of the local congregation to do the work of the church, you know, institutionalism, um, as well as just the general steps to salvation section. All that is under the topics menu item. So lots of topics, lots of materials, lots of studying you can do on your own. All right, Jeff, well, that wraps it for our two-part series on the organization of the church. We hope those of you that have listened have found it to be beneficial. Please take a look at those resources that we mentioned and continue to study so that you can find the truth from God's Word. Thank you for listening to this edition of the Bible Questions podcast. We invite you to visit our website at biblequestions.org, where you can find over a thousand scripture-filled articles on a wide variety of Bible topics, along with about two dozen free Bible study lessons and other Bible study aids. Plus, you can submit a Bible question to us to get a personal response within a couple of days. Check it all out at biblequestions.org.